0: Good morning. Glad everybody's here this morning. Try to get situated here. Thank you, Abby and Hannah. They always do a great job. Our whole worship team always does. We appreciate that effort that goes into that. I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about being an overcomer. I think we all tend to gravitate towards stories of survival or, you know, hardship where somebody has really endured and has overcome some great feat or some great challenge. We love those stories, don't we? There's movies made about these things. Uh, I think about um, Aaron Ralston. Maybe you've heard of Aaron Ralston. He was hiking in a canyon in Utah when a boulder fell and and pinned his arm against the canyon wall. And so he's alone. Nobody knows where he is. He failed to tell everybody, anybody where he was going, when he would be back. So he's stuck. And he cannot get out. And so Aaron, after about 127 hours of videoing himself and saying his goodbyes to family and friends, he finally realizes he has one option. And that is to, to basically snap his arm, the bone's And get his pocket knife and cut his arm off. Which he does. And hikes out of that canyon. And rappels down a cliff. One handed somehow. And finally is found by some other hikers. And he survives. And there's a movie about that called 127 Hours. But that's an overcoming spirit. That's not being willing to go down without a fight. Not just rolling over and being defeated. And then there's a what's his name louis zemperini or i don't know if i said that right Uh, that was uh, lost at sea captured by the japanese endured all kinds of hardship in a prison camp uh, starvation torture cold the worst things you can imagine yet he overcame and he lived a long life and there's been movies made about him as well uh, so many different stories like that, you know, survival wilderness. That, and I love those kind of stories. I've gotten into this thing lately about these people getting attacked by bears. So wouldn't encourage you to go there. But people that survive against all odds, it's, it's really encouraging. But, if we, you know, if we do that physically, what about spiritually? I mean, if you think those things are bad, if, I think if we could have our spiritual eyes open to the attack that we're under all the time, the devil is after us. He wants to destroy us. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And sometimes I think we're just oblivious to it. And maybe, maybe we haven't even realized the success that he's had with us. But it's so important to be an overcomer. We need to not only do that physically, but we need to do that spiritually in our lives. We need to overcome hardship. We need to overcome persecution. We need to overcome everything that comes against us. And we need to wake up and we need to realize that we might not be where we think we are. And that's a little bit of what I want to talk about this morning. We know we've been, if you've been here the last few weeks, Joe's been working through the letters to the seven churches in Revelation And we're not really going to go into that. He's doing a fantastic job with that. We'll touch on it just briefly. But each church received a different personalized message. But as I read through that, I notice there's there's one thing that Jesus said to all seven churches. And the way that it reads, it's more like he's speaking to the individuals in the churches. The letters are to the churches at large. But there's one thing Jesus says in each one of them. He says, he who overcomes. If you go back and you look at all seven letters, that's in every one of them. He says, he who overcomes, which is personalized. Takes it from the church level to a personal level. He who overcomes. And then he lists different things that will happen for those that that overcome. And the Greek word for overcome is the word nakao. And it means... You could say it this way, he who prevails, he who gets the victory, he who holds fast against the power of his foe. That's what the word means. So he who overcomes gets the reward. In Matthew 24, 13, Jesus tells his followers that the one who endures to the end shall be saved. So to endure or to overcome all the way to the end. Sometimes we think it's just a one and done. I walked the aisle, I repeated a prayer, I got dunked under some water, all is good. Jesus might say otherwise. He's looking for those that endure to the end. He's looking for overcomers. In the letters to the churches, Jesus tells the believers in each one something different about what will happen if they overcome. To the church at Ephesus, he says, he who overcomes will eat from the tree of life. Think about that. What happened whenever mankind ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Devastation. Look at what we're still, still dealing with. And we always will in these earthly bodies. You know, why is Russia attacking Ukraine? Well, there might be all sorts of political reasons why, but the main reason why is because man is sinful. Man is at war because he's, he's, his heart is one of rebellion. So just think, he who overcomes will eat from the tree of life. You know, giving your life to Christ is just, a, just a, like a sampling of what it will be like to be in God's kingdom and eat from the tree of life. When everything that went wrong, whenever Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, will all be set right by partaking of the tree of life. To the church at Smyrna, he says, He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. See, a lot of people think when you die, that's it, lights out. There's two deaths. People don't realize. You die once physically, but you can die a second time spiritually. And many, many people will. There will be people that sat in churches their whole life that did great things there will probably be people that talk to others about the Lord who will taste the second death. He will say, I never knew you. You say to me, Lord, Lord, but I, I, never, I didn't know you. To the church at Pergamum, he tells them, he will give them some of the hidden manna. And we know manna is bread from heaven, but we also know that Jesus is the bread of life. So the overcomers to the church at Pergamum, he says he will give them some of the hidden manna and a white stone and a new name written on it. Now, in this culture, these letters were being written to you. White stones were given in court to the innocent, whereas the guilty would receive a black stone. So when Jesus gives you a white stone, what is he saying? He's saying you're innocent. And the only reason you're innocent is because of what I did on your behalf. And also in that culture, a, a host, like a, a great party or a dinner, would show appreciation to a special guest by giving them a white stone with their name on it or a special message written on it. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to be handed a white stone with my new name that's written down in glory. With a special message on it. You know, Welcome by good and faithful servant. That's what we want to hear. To Thyatira, he says he will give them authority over the nations and the morning star. So believers that endure to the end will reign with Jesus. And by the way, he is the morning star. We will be given him the the morning star. To Sardis, he says he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father And before his angels. We know white of course is symbolic of purity. You've probably read through the book of Revelation. And you see the description of a myriad of people. Dressed in white robes. Worshipping the lamb. So Jesus clothes us in white garments. Our own efforts at good works just don't quite cut it. They don't result in pure white garments that we will be given. Clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life the fact that jesus promised to not erase overcomers names from the book of life tells us something it tells us that a name can be erased from the book of life and i know that's controversial in a lot of theology today but jesus is the one that he said overcomers will not have their name erased from the book of life so logically we draw the conclusion that others maybe will we don't want to be in the category of the others to the church at Philadelphia, he says to those that overcome, he will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. Now, we've all heard of people that are pillars of their community, you know, upstanding citizens that, that maybe are you know, give a lot and do a lot of things and build things and, and just bring stability to, to a community. Pillars represent strength and stability and beauty. The name of God and the New Jerusalem signify ownership and a place of belonging. And so they're promised they will be made a pillar in the temple of God. And he will write upon them the name of, of God and the name of the city of my God. So it's ownership and a place of belonging. To Laodicea, he says to the overcomers that he will grant them to sit down with him on the throne. This one really got me this week when I was rereading through these letters. It just really hit me. Overcomers, Jesus will grant to them to sit down with him on his throne. I don't know if you've let that sink in or not, but for undeserving belligerent rebellious people which is really what we are in so many ways to be invited to sit down with Jesus on his throne that is a thing of grace and beauty right there much much more than we could ever ever deserve believers who are faithful to the end will receive great rewards but the only way to be an overcomer is to be a true believer and so I really want you to think about what we're about to talk about in this next little section here being a believer is not about agreeing that Jesus is God's son or that he he died on the cross or that he was a really cool guy or that he was a great teacher and influencer we hear that don't we oh he, Jesus was a great teacher or philosopher it's not about just believing certain things about Jesus. Being a true believer is about trust and surrender. It's about what do you do with that head knowledge. It's about more than the mind. It involves the heart. 1 John 5, 4 and 5 says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. There's our word again, overcome. Whatever's born of God overcomes the world. And this... Is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And the word believe is the word in in Greek, it's the word pistuo. It means to think to be true, to be persuaded of, and to place confidence in. So it's more than just facts in the head or knowledge in the head. It's, do you really trust it? It's like if you were to go uh, rappelling off of a cliff. You have to trust the ropes. If, if, if anybody's ever done that, that first little lean back, that's absolute confidence that the, that the equipment's going to work. And it's tough to do. If you haven't done it, give it a try. <laughs> it's exhilarating. But we, we put trust, don't we? We don't just think in our head, oh, yeah, I, I believe that harnesses and ropes work, and carabiners. I, I, I know they do for someone else. That's for someone else to do. No, if you really believe it, you'll exercise that belief. And you'll say, you know what? I do believe. People do this all the time. And I believe this works. And so you will step forward in true belief. It's more than just mental assent. True belief does not come from the head, but from the heart. The Bible tells us even the demons believe and shudder. I mean, if you think the demons don't believe that Jesus was crucified for believers and then he rose again, they absolutely believe it. But they have no place in the kingdom because they haven't done anything with that belief. They haven't applied it to their life. They haven't moved it from the head to the heart. Romans 10 9 and 10 says if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe where in your heart that God raised him from the dead you shall be saved for with the heart man believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation I'll give you one more Greek word and I'm not a Greek scholar but I can google The Greek word for heart here is the word cardia, which is where we get our English word cardio or cardiac, and it does indeed mean the the heart muscle, like the actual physical organ, but it also means the rational and emotional elements, the seat of moral nature. Maybe that's why we refer to things like loving with all of our heart or knowing things with our heart. Or being broken hearted. We don't mean that, you know, our heart broke, our our physical heart broken too. But we all know what we mean when we say it, don't we? Being broken hearted. We know it innately. Or sometimes we might say, well, my heart's not really in it. Or my heart was really in it. Or we promise with all of our heart. If the word doesn't mean more than just the physical organ, then none of that makes any sense, but we all use that language. Because we know what we're talking about. We know there's, there's depth. There's something more there. So why do we talk that way? We don't think with our hearts. We think with our minds, right? Why then would we use such language about the heart? Because we are more than a clump of cells. We have an eternal soul. We are spiritual beings. The soul consists of the mind, the will, and the emotions. And I think it kind of we interchange that with heart a lot of times. Perhaps that's why we use the word heart to describe more than just our our blood pump. We believe and accept the gospel message with more than just our minds. And don't miss this. You cannot miss this. We believe it and accept it with our hearts. So Please do not miss the simple, true gospel message. There's just a few verses that kind of take us through it. Romans 3:23, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I think that language, is it on the screen? I'm not looking, yeah. All have sinned and fall short short of the glory of God I think it's on purpose that it doesn't say have, have fallen short of the glory of God we're not talking past tense we're talking present tense we all sin and we all fall short of the glory of God that's the description of the problem so what's the solution Romans six twenty three tells us a little bit more about the, the result of the problem the wages of sin is death we've already discussed that death is not just the first death of physical dying but it can be the second death of spiritual death, separation from God for all of eternity. The wages of sin is death. That's what it earns us. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So while we were in that rebellion, while we were separated, Christ came and he died for us. Ephesians 2, 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead, again, you know, once again, separation. You're separated from God because of trespasses and sins. In verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. And then Jesus comes along and If it's not clear enough, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, but by me. There is no... I'm losing this thing. It's losing me. There's no hope outside of Jesus. He suffered and died for you and me, and he did it by choice. Nobody puts God on a cross without him going willingly. Do you remember when Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane tried to rescue Jesus? (laughs) Let me help you out here, Jesus. And he whacks off the soldier's ear. What did Jesus say? He said, put your sword away. And then he said this, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Matthew twenty-six 53. I've asked Abby to come and sing a song, and, and if you know this song, feel free to sing along. I don't know that we got the words up there, but um, listen closely to the words of this song. It's, an old, it's not that old of a hymn, but it is a hymn found in many modern hymn books. But it talks about how Jesus willingly did this for you, and for me. This is the story of His death for you and me. Abby's going to sing for
1: us. In the garden where He prayed They led Him through the streets in shame They spat upon the Savior so pure and free from sin. They said crucify him he's to blame. He could have called ten thousand angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called ten thousand angels, but he died alone for you and me. Upon his precious head They placed a crown of thorns, they laughed and said, Behold the king. They struck him and they cursed him and mocked his holy name. And all alone he suffered everything. He could have called ten thousand angels to destroy the world. And set him free He could have called Ten thousand angels But he died alone For you and me When they nailed him to the cross His mother stood nearby They said, Woman, behold thy son He cried, I thirst for water But they gave him none to drink Then the sinful work of men was done He could have called ten thousand angels To destroy the world and set him free He could have called ten thousand angels angels, but he died alone for you and me. (laughs) To the howling mob he yielded, he did not for mercy cry. The cross of shame he took alone. And when he cried, it's finished, he gave himself to die. Salvation's wondrous plan was done. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free he could have called ten thousand angels but he died alone for you and
0: There we go. She's a good girl that does what daddy asks her, because she had never heard that song before this week, <laughs> and I said, hey, can you do this for me, because it really, it's really going to fit. So, well, Ray Overholt was born in 1924, and he wrote his first song when he was 10. As he got to become into adulthood, he hosted a TV show for a while called Roy's Roundup, and he met people like Gene Autry and Hank Williams. When he left the show, he entered the nightclub circuit and began playing and singing his music through different nightclubs in the area. Well, that led him into on again, it's on again, off again, on again, off again. That led him into drinking heavily. And then one day he decided he wanted a better life than the nightclub show business lifestyle. So he went home and he told his wife, he said, "I'm going to quit smoking and drinking and cursing. I'm going to clean up my life." And around that time, before, right before he did that, he was playing in a country band at a tavern slash dance hall when he wrote the song 10,000 Angels. He said, I don't know why God selected me to write the song. I drank a lot, was a profane individual, and I needed a savior. He had written many secular songs. And he just decided he would write a song about Christ. So he started reading in Matthew about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he read where Jesus told Peter he could have asked his father, which is the verse we read earlier, to send 12 legions of angels. He later said, I, I didn't know at the time that that could have been as many as 72,000 angels, 12 legions. He didn't know it at the time, so 10,000 must have seemed like enough to him. And one night while playing the nightclub at Battle Creek, Michigan, he felt impressed upon to write this song. So he wrote out the first verse, and he stuck it in his guitar case, and he notified the club owner that he was going to quit. Sometime later, he was singing uh, at at a small church. He started to travel and sing at at churches. So he was at this little small church, and he sang the song that he had written about the Savior that he still didn't know. He wrote that song, if you can imagine, and he still didn't really know Jesus because it's not about the mind. It's about the heart. The preacher smoked, smoked. Sorry, the preacher didn't smoke. He spoke a message that, that gripped Ray's heart. And he knelt and accepted as his Savior the one he had been singing about. He became a traveling singer and preacher and wrote over 200 other songs. Ray Overholt went to meet his Savior on September 14, 2008, while getting in his van to head to a concert. He was led to Christ by his own song that God gave him. But this story shows you can give mental assent to Jesus without giving him your heart. Make sure that you know him, that you trust him, that he is the Lord of your life. Give him more than your head. Give him your heart. When we say yes with our hearts, we will go where Jesus says to go. We will do what he says to to do. We start to live with eternity in mind, not just the day-to-day grunging it out, thinking about only temporary things. We concern ourselves with those things that last forever. We invest in the kingdom. To be an overcomer, we need to do what Paul told the church at Corinth to do, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verses 24 through 27. This is in the New Living Translation. Forgive me. You must also run in such a way that you will win. All athletes practice self-control. They do it to win a prize that will fade away. But we do it for an eternal prize. So I run straight to the goal with purpose in every step. I'm not like a boxer who misses his punches. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Now, if we'll do that in sports, pray tell, why would we not do that, <laughs> spiritually speaking? Discipline ourselves. Run the race with endurance. Endurance. Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9-15, through 15, instructs the church in this way, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus." Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it. He's talking about the day of judgment will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. That's a very, very important section of Scripture. Because what that's telling us is that you can accept Christ as your Savior. And you can get into heaven. And and he says right there toward the end, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. So you can be in heaven forevermore. And some people think, well, that's good enough for me as long as I'm there. But I don't know if we've thought much about the, the judgment of believers. Now, Jesus is our advocate. When we stand before God, we're in or out of his kingdom based on what we did with Jesus what he did for us and what we have accepted on that he's done on our behalf. But then there are other there's other judgment that happens. What did you do with the life I gave you? What Jesus is going to judge us on? And there are different rewards in the kingdom of God. I mean, yeah, I wouldn't mind just, you know, being over here polishing the street of gold on my hands and knees as a, as a you know an outcast almost not an outcast but you know on the edge over here in heaven and still be in heaven but what about being invited in deeper closer to to the great white throne to where Jesus is what about that because of what we did with what he's given us and what he's called us to do with this life we will face judgment We can be saved, but we will still be judged. Why would we not want to honor the Lord with everything we can after all He's done for us? We determine how we build upon the life that we have in Christ. Are we focused on the temporary, which just gratifies the flesh? Or are we focused on the eternal and following the Word of God? So the bottom line is, Who is your boss? Are you the boss of your life? Or is Jesus the boss of your life? Far too many times I've gotten in the way and became my own boss. It's a daily struggle. It's a battle to not do that daily. Don't be like the old Ray Overholt who sang about Jesus but did not really know him. Be like the new Ray Overholt, the Ray who was born again and lived his life for Christ. Move it from the head to the heart and walk in obedience to what God has called you to do. The girls are going to come. We're going to continue in worship. Let me just pray as they do that. Father, we thank you for your word. God, it is difficult to live in these fleshly bodies with your word we would certainly be lost without it so we thank you that you've made it very clear we just need to surrender everything to you we need to go from head knowledge to heart knowledge and and give you our lives and realize that that you're the master help us to live in honor of you giving you the glory for all that you've done all that you are doing and all that you will do so when we stand before you one day lord when we we will face judgment we don't want to just barely squeeze into heaven and that's it we want to be given those great gifts that you want to to dish out to those that have followed you to those that have honored you with their lives so father forgive us when we fall short and help us to follow you with our whole heart in jesus name